0: hello and welcome to episode 117 of page one the writer's podcast i'm Tarek.
1: i'm marco and this is where i normally tell you what the podcast is all about but i'm not going to this week because this <gasps> week is a very special episode it was a uh, our first ever live recorded episode we recorded it at chimera festival in edinburgh back at the start of june and uh, i'd give you all the spiel about what the podcast is about at the start of the live episode so um i should also say that because it's a live episode uh, we were in quite an echoey room and there were a lot of squeaky chairs in the audience (laughs) so uh, the audio is is perhaps not up to the usual standard let's say but um we've cleaned it up as much as we can and hopefully you'll have a great time listening to the brilliant guest that we were speaking to
0: yeah the fantastic sci-fi epic writer that is adrian tchaikovsky uh oh i should also say sci-fi and fantasy because he's written in both um genres very successfully he's a very nice guy it was a very fun chat some great audience questions yeah it's a really good
2: episode i think
1: yeah so um we'll we'll get straight into it after a quick advert for a writer's notebook but we won't be back at the end of the podcast as normal. We'll just let you hear the full live experience. But before we go, did just want to let you know that next week is also a very special week for Page One <gasps> because I can't take
0: these revelations, Mark.
1: <laughs> because it's August, we're based in Edinburgh, and that means that it's all about the the festival and the fringe. The
0: hell, that is edinburgh festival exactly. trying to get anywhere exactly <laughs>
1: no but we, we've uh we've managed to uh, arrange to speak to a number of comedians that are performing at the festival and we're going to be releasing special bite-sized episodes with them talking to them about how they craft and write their uh, stand-up routines uh, and those will be released daily next week uh, so that um it's a, something a bit different if you're interested in getting into comedy, writing comedy, or if you just like comedy, hopefully they'll be of interest to you.
0: Yeah. I'm but, just very glad I'm not the one editing this podcast, people.
1: Yes, indeed, indeed. There'll be a lot of editing to do. But anyway, I'm not thinking about that just now. Um, so we'll <laughs> get uh, straight into the podcast after a quick advert, and then uh, we will see you for the comedy episodes.
0: But for now, on with the podcast.
1: The blank page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is... Write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow.
0: But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again?
1: Every story starts with page one. Right, hi everyone, and thanks for joining us for what is a very special episode of the Page One Writers Podcast because this is our first ever live audience episode. So, as we fluff our lines, please, please forgive us. <laughs> um, for those of you that don't know the podcast. Uh, we like to speak to writers of all kinds about their writing process, talk about how they got into the industry, and try and get some hints and tips from them as, as well. Um, we're also the creators of the Page One Notebook, which you can see here on the table. We're in the creators' hall all weekend, so if you fancy coming along and having a look at that, that would be great. Um, special discounted prices this weekend only, so yeah, please do pop in and say hi at, at some stage.
0: And uh, We have a very special guest with us, today, the amazing Adrian Tchaikovsky. Uh, Adrian is a, an award-winning and highly acclaimed science fiction and fantasy author uh, with works published at home and abroad. Um, he primarily, primarily explores deep themes such as artificial intelligence, alien awareness within an epic fantasy and a uh, space setting, and he has a deep interest in the animal world because of his background in zoology, with a particular fancy for spiders, which we will definitely get to uh, and of course he 's known for his series, Children of Time, Shadows of the Apt, and much much more, which we will definitely be asking him all about
1: and I should say that at the end of the podcast, we will give the opportunity for some questions if anyone 's got any at the end but um, Thanks very much for coming along, Adrian. Today.
2: Thank you very much for having me on the show.
1: Uh, so I always start the podcast with the same question, which is, did you always want to be a writer?
2: Um, so not really, because certainly for most of my younger life, it didn't even kind of appear on the map as an option that a person could be. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I was, um, certainly throughout my teenage years, my creativity very much went into tabletop role-playing. And then I encountered a series of books called The Dragonlance Chronicles, mm-hmm. um, which are basically someone novelizing their Dungeons & Dragons campaign. And that just bridged that gap. So, well, if look, if they can do that, then I could do that. That actually means I could actually be a writer. That is certainly a thing that's on the map. And as it turned out, I couldn't do that. And I spent many, many years writing absolute trash. <laughs> um, but slowly getting better with each attempt and eventually it paid off but it was that that was the conceptual leap um, that just bridged the gap between this this weird thing that people elsewhere did and uh, and where I was at the time
0: now you you studied zoology and then psychology at uni and then became a legal executive i mean so what was your were you i mean it's a very interesting path and were you writing whole yes. time as well.:
2: It's kind of career madlib. <laughs> um, so yes, all, all throughout that I was um, writing, and through most of that, I was yeah, actively submitting books for publication and getting absolutely nowhere. Um, so yeah, so I studied zool- I mean zoology I mean, as you mentioned, yeah, the animal world is a big passion of mine. Zoology has always, always been a passion of mine. Um, I, did, I got about halfway through uh, the, the zoology element before I basically chucked it in at university, mostly because I am no good at dissecting things. And that was a major part (laughs) of the course. I lack the manual dexterity for it, which is a weird reason not to do a university (laughs) course. I came out of the psychology half massively uh, disillusioned with uh, the general study of psychology. Um, And then I ended up in law through a bizarre series of coincidences, mostly to do with me having a decent typing speed and getting a job as a (laughs) legal secretary. Um, So, I mean, through all of this, I was writing. And throughout all of this, the only thing I specifically wanted to do that I made actual choices about was writing. And everything else just kind of happened. And I just took opportunities as they turned up and just went with the flow, to be
1: honest. And your first novel that was published was Empire in Black and Gold in two thousand and eight, which is the first of the Shadows of the Act series. Did you how did that what was the route to publishing for that? Did you go down the usual three chapters in a synopsis with an agent or
2: Yeah, and and that was I mean that was at the time yeah, this is so this is back in like two thousand five, two thousand six. That was kind of the only game in mm-hmm. town. Um yeah, the big self publishing boom was not no one had even dreamt of it at that point. Um, and so what the the routine I was in was basically every year I would write a book, I would submit the book um, to the three agents and five publishers who were in the Writers and Artists Yearbook as touching science fiction and fantasy. Um, of those, one agent and maybe two publishers would actually get back and say, no, we don't want it and the others would just be conspicuous in their silence. Um, and then I would write a different book. And this went on the years and I was going steadily nuts, frankly, at not getting anywhere. And so uh, I set myself a deadline of my 35th birthday to get anywhere in the industry, after which I would absolutely chuck it in. Um, And because of that, I said, well, I'm going to throw everything into this final effort. So rather than just writing a book, I will take a setting that I know really well, which in this case, with a setting, I'd run a role-playing game, Of back when I was at university I will write not one book, I will write an entire plot arc of um, what turned out to be the first four books of Shadows of the Apt and then I will submit because otherwise if you submit submit the first book and it gets knocked back you're never going to have the the mental fortitude to carry on with it or certainly I wouldn't Um, and I submitted that book and that book had um, a positive response from an agent two weeks before my 35th (laughs) <laughs> and whether I would have given up or not I can't say because that is one of those sliding doors moments but certainly I was frankly you know, mental health wise not in a terribly good place because this is the thing I really wanted to do and I was getting literally nowhere and so yeah and that, was, that was the break and it came purely by chance well I, partly by chance one of the things I've done since, and one of the things I suspect that most published writers will do, is I've gone back through the drawer of older books. The two manuscripts I'd written before Empire and Black and Gold have been salvaged and are now in print after substantial rewriting. The one before that was unsalvageable, and so on back through the, the list. And it goes to show that the stuff I was writing that I thought was absolute gold dust at the time was not of a publishable quality. But, my God, you could not have told me that at the time, but I have
0: <laughs> and, and so yet you, you, you wrote those four books before you... or five books before you got going, before you started trying to find an agent. In, in terms of... Had you planned out those five books? Had you sat down and worked out where they were going to go, or did you kind of write one book and then... No,
2: I, I had a fairly good idea of the, um, of the arc. I mean, I, I am a, I'm an inveterate planner. I've recently started experimenting with planning less for a particular okay. effect, but... In general, you know, so for, I mean, let's take a, a more recent series of taking the Shards of Earth series. Yep. When I set down for that, I create, the, I always start with the world anyway. So I created the universe of that and all the, the factions and history and all of that sort of stuff. Um, I then planned out the first book chapter by chapter, but I, doing that, I had a fairly good idea of the arc of the second book and at least a loose idea of where the third book would go, even though a lot of the actual wheres and fours were still a bit up in the air. Yep. and um, that's not dissimilar to the sort of um, the sort of process I have when I was working on, sh- on the Shadows of the Outbooks. I kind of knew the general arc. There were certain scenes from the, the um, you know, books three and four that I knew we would get to, and other stuff that kind of got added in later and fleshed out as I went on, but the skeleton was definitely there.
1: Yep. And when you are writing, are you someone that's looking to try and get that first draft out of the way or do you take time to revise that as you're going?
2: Um, so my... People have noted that I write a lot of books. Um, I do not write a lot of words as far as I can work out based on any other author's reported word counts. Um, the, if there is a secret to my output, it is that my first draft and my submission draft are very, very similar. I do have an editing pass. Generally, it involves taking out a number of thousands of words because I overwrite. Um, This is in addition to the numbers of thousands of words my editors will then take out (laughs) because I overwrite and I'm not terribly good at editing. Um, But in general, barring a couple of absolutely catastrophic misses where my planning has screwed up, um, the fact that I plan means that the book I turn out at the end of the first draft, that is going to be... 95% identical to the thing I will submit to my agent. Um, So, I am... It's not so much that I'm editing on the way through, so I'm not constantly going back and so forth. I will write start to finish, and I genuinely believe that getting a finished draft, no matter what you do with it next, is one of the most important things about pressing onwards and actually getting stuff done as a writer. But... um, because I have a fairly clear vision of what's going on in uh, of what's going on in the plot, and a very clear idea of how the world is, so that everything I put down is reasonably consistent with everything else, um, that that first draft is generally pretty solid when I'm when I'm done with it.
0: And and in terms of your your kind of daily routine, do you? sit and write from nine o'clock till five or do you break up or do you just squeeze it around?
2: I genuinely couldn't. Um, there is basically, when I'm not writing, I'm building up a head of steam on what happens next. When I sit down, that then comes out. I mean, this is the, the, other, the other thing about productivity is I'm, part of my brain is always turning over, you know, literally what is the exact next thing that I'm going to put on the page in my current work in progress. So, I sit down, I'm immediately in, I can get going, I have momentum, and then that just goes. And eventually, I will run out of the stuff that my brain has been considering in detail. And that's as far as I can do. And, and usually, that's a morning. So, I will say, you know, two, three hours of the morning will exhaust my sort of on tap inspiration. And at that point, I will need to have some downtime of, of the afternoon and, you know, the night or whatever before I'm recharged for the next morning. One thing this means is I'm currently working on other other media stuff. I'm working with some games companies doing doing writing for them. It doesn't tap into the same thing and I found I can do a morning on my projects and an afternoon on their projects without it getting in the way, which is really handy. But if I didn't have that, I would basically have the afternoon just kind of doing admin, edits, whatever else has has come my way. Um, Because there's there's just a, a hard limit to what I can do in a day.
1: And, and your books have often have a theme to them: environmental issues, treatment of animals, and things like that. I mean, is you know, when you're when those ideas are starting to germinate, are you concentrating on the theme first, or is it the characters, or the plot, or does it vary from book to book? Um,
2: dif- so I try to range quite widely within the bounds of the SFF genre. And depending on where I am, the theme especially will have a front seat or a back seat role. Um, consciously thinking about theme is something that's kind of come quite late on. Um, it certainly turns up in earlier stuff, but I'm, that's kind of almost incidental. So certainly when I was writing Shadows Out, I wasn't thinking theme. I was like, I'm going to write a great big fantasy epic yeah. with, with fighting and politics and so forth. and It was just very much, I was writing within a particular... Mode, a particular established mode of of fantasy, and just adding my own bits in with the, you know, a certain amount of blending the steampunk into epic fantasy and bringing the insects in and all of that sort of thing, and the aim really was just I want to write something that is simultaneously like the stuff people like and different enough to distinguish it from the stuff they've already read, Mm -hmm. and I think I kind of you know hit that fairly square on with the with that series. Uh, but I certainly wasn't thinking I'm going to change the world with this book, and I don't think I did. Um, and as things have gone on, I mean, my more recent writing, I, I think, is probably more consciously aware of the actual world I'm of you know, the the real world that I'm writing in. And sometimes I've got so frustrated with the real world that the bones of that are very very apparent, <laughs> as I'm as I'm aware, but it's kind of the only outlet I've got and it's that or scream out of a window. So,
0: <laughs> I was going to ask, is it a kind of cathartic it, process?
2: It, I mean, cathartic is positive. It's almost like it's not so much cathartic as it's just literally, I get so frustrated that sometimes you've got to do something and that's I'm, I'm blessed in having that kind of soapbox. And, you know, I think that you can help, even in a tiny, tiny world, you can help make the world a better place by writing books that either show a better way of doing things or at least highlight the bad ways of doing things that we've got. And so that's my minuscule contribution to the future, I guess. I've saved a reasonable number of spiders.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, that brings us to Children of Time, which uh, it's fair to say was probably the big... Breakout and we were chatting before uh, the podcast started recording actually about that and you were saying that um, in fact at first it didn't receive the warmest of
2: receptions. (laughs) Yeah so Children of Time um, at the time that I, I pitched Children of Time to Pan Macmillan I was a effectively I was a middleist fantasy author who was doing okay I'd had 10 books of you know the fact that I'd got an entire 10 books arc of Jill of the uh, Shadows of the App series is looks insane to me looking back now but it was very much the case of I was walking a tightrope the entire series and didn't really realise because the idea that well they might just not publish the last few books of this series you've got planned didn't ever occur to me it's absolutely a thing that happens um I had Guns of the Dawn had just come out. Um, Still one of my absolute favourite fantasy books. Um, Has never been particularly was was not particularly well received at the time. Didn't do amazingly well. Uh, The Tiger and the Wolf series was kind of midway through, and I said, "Well, I want to write this 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 science fiction book." I have read these studies about spider behaviour. I obviously want to write a book about where that might go if they were a dominant species on a planet. I cooked up this plot to showcase this kind of speculative scenario. Can I do that? And the publishers looked at that and think, this, this, this looks absolutely dreadful, but the, <laughs> the fantasy books are doing okay, so I suppose we better indulge. I mean, this is purely me kind of reading this into their response, but that's kind of the impression I got. And so it came out and had a very modest advance and was fairly indifferently reviewed, and then it ended up on the clock shortlist. And suddenly, you know, it was just this exponential thump. And for the people who are only seeing this in audio, I'm making a big upward gesture with my hands. <laughs> <laughs> who are only seeing this in audio. That's okay. <laughs> anyway, um, and obviously it won the clock, and that was the whole extra kind of level of thump that it got. And it was this bizarre and extremely welcome levelling up uh, of my kind of writing career which has since allowed me to become a full-time writer and to pay off the mortgage and other pleasant things like that. But it was, it was completely unexpected. And no one thought that, including me, thought that book would do terribly well. It was just a bit of a vanity project of mine that I really wanted to write this space book about spiders. And somehow that really worked for people. So,
0: I mean, that was certainly the book that, got me into you. That was that my kind of, kind of I don't know, like a gateway, a gateway book. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and I, I loved the spiders. I loved the evolution, uh, how you'd mapped it a lot. And I wondered, how do you research something like that? Because obviously, you've got a geology background, partly, and a big interest in science and animals and stuff. And was that, did it all kind of feed from that source?
2: Yeah, I mean, I... It's a book about the things that have always fascinated me. I love evolution. I love deep time. I love... Specific, I mean, I was introduced, speculative evolution of the field was something I ran into with authors like Dougal Dixon. Mm-hmm. And then at the London Worldcon some years ago, they had a really good stream of uh, panels and things with various speculative evolution um, scientists and authors and so forth talking about it. And that, again, it was one of those, oh, this is actually a thing. It's not just there was this one book. There's a the whole field of people who are thinking about evolution, you know, evolution out of the box, as it were. And again, it's the matter of, almost like, you now have permission to go off and think about that as, a, as an area to write about, write fiction about. Um, and then I came across, uh, so the, the New Zealand um, zoologist called Fiona Cross, who ran these you know, real experiments with um, the real Porsche labiata spiders okay. and their incredible range of extremely sophisticated behavior, which Absolutely pushes the the envelope of what you think a creature with just a tiny knot of neurons for a brain can really do. And to me, that well, what if they? You know, where would that go? What if that could? What if that had the opportunity to kind of get to a full full on human level sentience? What well, what societies? What kind of customs? What beliefs? And really, the whole book is just an excuse for me to explore that idea. Um, which is, you know, to a certain extent, that's what science fiction does. But also, you know, 90% of the book is kind of just me having to throw things in to turn it into an actual book rather than just an essay.
1: <laughs> and when you're, um, when you're editing something like that, because obviously Children's Time has this massive epic scope and type, uh, expanse of time, um, how do you keep track of all the interconnected threads and, and things like that?
2: I mean, as, as with most of my writing, it's all very front-loaded. Um, and to a certain extent, when I was going through... Because you, it's, it's the first book I wrote where I was actually experimenting with structure and style. Because it is such an odd... Because it's taking part over all of that time period. And because you are batting backwards and forwards between the spider and the human plot lines. And so I kind of, I I kind of, I, I was writer enough at that point to appreciate, well, like, I can't just start throwing stuff at the page. I've got to start thinking more about theme and link, linking the human and the spider section so that there's some sort of echo going on between them. Um, which absolutely had not failed to land for a lot of readers because they've got readers saying, well, these bit link and these bits don't. And I think, well, they did to me, but obviously (laughs) I'm not making that particularly explicit. Um, and also just things like, the spider sections are present tense and the human sections are past tense, which has a symbolic load to it. And I think writing that book actually taught me quite a lot about writing because I was having to reinvent the wheel to a certain extent. Because, I I mean, I've never been formally trained. I've never been on a writing course. Um, I've never read books about writing or anything like that. So it's all very much me cobbling together things that I could probably have learned much more easily had I been particularly receptive to anyone trying to teach me
1: anything. (laughs) And I was just going to ask, just staying on the research point. You say you've said that obviously you front load a lot of the things, but do you do all of the research in advance and then start writing, or do you research as and when an issue or a question comes up during? The
2: I, I mean, I try and front load. I mean, you, it's one of those you you never you don't know what you don't know, yes. and you certainly come across stuff halfway through with it. I have no idea how this actually works. I better go and I need to go and check. Um, And thankfully, a lot of the time, the Internet is your friend and there's Google and there's Wikipedia or there's just going on Twitter and saying, does anyone know anyone who knows anything about this? And there was a bit I've got a a novella that's currently with Rebellion, um, which involves, yeah, it's, it's it's. it's one of those where it, it's a hard science story because if it wasn't, it wouldn't make any sense at all. The only reason it works is because I'm dealing with actual real world things and how they can go wrong. And I got to the end of that and thought, oh, that's finished. And then except that there is a question about how well the science I'm using interacts with the setting I'm using, which possibly invalidates the entire book. So I had to suddenly <laughs> scrabble about and get hold of a lot of um, quite specialized botanists in this case and say... So, have I, does, do, have I just completely wasted my time with this book? Does this work? And then, thankfully, there were some things I could go back and just fudge <laughs> <laughs> earlier on that meant that the whole thing wasn't completely nonsensical.
0: And one thing we've, we've chatted to folk book in the past, we have had to do similar big research um, expeditions into like whether it's a historical book or a science fiction book, and the big question we've always had with them is how do you know what to leave off and what to put in? And how, how do you make... Something feel like a story and not just like a kind of Wikipedia entry.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I am a martyr to overwriting. I, a lot of the stuff I have to take out is generally me just vomiting world-building stuff onto the page <laughs> to show how terribly clever I've been. And. <laughs> then the, But, it, I mean, in a way, it's, it's part of, the, I think, the, the writing process in that when I put that in the page in that way, I have internalized it enough. It then usually becomes implicit in the writing anyway, and I can go back and take away the scaffolding, and the arch yeah. sort of stands yeah. up yeah. at that point. But there, there's usually a certain amount of overwriting that that I've just kind of li- learned to live with, and I just, I, you know, I know I won't get to keep this stuff, but I'm putting it down now, and that's just sort of finishing off that planning yeah. that I started just with you know no, just bullet points on a Word document.
1: And and your latest book is Eyes of the Void, which is book two in the Final Architecture series. It came out in April. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about that one?
2: There's because it is book two, I can't particularly tell you about Eyes of the Void specifically, okay. but I, I mean I can talk about the series as a whole a yeah. that. Yeah. So this is my this is my space opera book uh, series. Um, I wanted to write a space opera series because while writing Children of Ruin, which so the children series is not by my light space opera because I'm trying to be quite hard, quite hard sciency about it. Um, which meant that even traveling around within a solar system in Children of Ruin, the travel times are ridiculous. And if people are spending weeks just kind of twiddling their thumbs going from one planet to another. Because I was keenly aware of the level of technology that they have. Um, so, Space Opera, Faster Than Light Travel. That was. I just want to write a book where people can go from one star system to another star system in a reasonably narratively convenient period of time <laughs> for which you've basically got to chuck most of science out of the window. Being me, I then decided I was going to really quite rigorously work out how the Faster Than Light Travel worked, and then that became the focus of the entire series. So the whole un, it, with the whole unspace navigation thing, it's... It's the raise and debtor of the main character, and it is the, um, the whole point of what is going on. It's where the architects come from. It's, all of that is all wrapped up in how that universe works. So the, the series is about 100 years before Shards of Earth, uh, when humanity has just started getting out into the wider universe, contacting alien races and so forth. A thing called an architect comes out of nowhere, it's about the size of the moon, it's made of um, crystal, it turns the earth into this enormous avant-garde sculpture, killing almost everyone on it, and then it goes away. And then it comes back and starts doing it to other colonies where people are, and just starts kind of eliminating humanity from the universe one world at a time completely randomly and in a way that, although people say, yes, we had a war against the architects, the war was basically this desperate rearguard action where whenever they turned up, everyone follows the little map they've got with their go bag, gets the hell onto a ship and you evacuate everyone you can and all of your military are basically just delaying the inevitable as long as you can to get that evacuation going. That is the war. Humanity spends about 50 years of colossal PTSD running away from these things. And then they develop something called intermediaries, which are really quite unpleasantly sort of chemically and surgically modified people who are, first of all, very, very good unspaced navigators, meaning that rather than following set pathways between star systems, they can go off-road, they can take you anywhere, they can go into deep space, whatever, but also, more importantly, they can contact architects. They don't fight them. But they initiate contact, and as soon as they initiate contact, the architects go away. And that's the end of the war. No one knows why they turned up. Why they do... because they're not destroying worlds, they are very pointedly making them into art. No one knows why, no one knows why they've gone away, and no one knows where they have gone to. Fifty years pass. Idris, Telemiae, is one of the original class of intermediaries. He has not aged in 50 years. The process affects everyone differently. He has not slept in 50 years. He is not a terribly well person. He wants nothing whatsoever to do with a large number of people who really, really want to exploit his superior navigation abilities. So he's working with a crappy little salvage ship on the edge of human space, going into deep space to find wrecks of ships that have gone off-road and not survived, because going into unspace space is terribly unhealthy. Most people... Have to go into suspend animation because it drives you mad. Uh, ships that have gone off road without a navigator, the people there do not do well. The only thing you can really do is salvage the ships and indeed the corpses. This is the happy life that Idris has got. And as part of this happy life and dodging various people who are trying to kind of basically own him because intermediaries are now commercially mass produced as property, um, they discover a recent wreck which has very obviously had the attentions of an architect. Because they're coming back, and that's kind of the kickoff point of the uh, the story. There are a lot of factions, humanity, and various alien races who are very much pointed in the same direction during the war, and now at each other's throats. No one is ready for the war to come back.
0: Um, it's a fantastic book, and I really like the kind of parts where you lean into the kind of. Cosmic horror, almost. I, I found the, the, the concept of, having, of going mad if you go too fast and go into space fascinating and, um, uh, yeah, just a crazy imagination. And, and, and I read that the Shards of Earth series was the first time you'd really planned out a trilogy from the start as opposed to kind of your Children of Time stuff where you maybe just left things Oh,
2: yeah. I mean, certainly I've done, um, I mean, my previous fantasy series have all been reasonably planned, but yeah, Children of Time was a standalone book. And then it did really well, and I had some extra ideas, so it became a series of two books. And at the end of this year, it'll become a series of three books. But each, the, each book is sufficient into itself, but builds on the previous books. Yeah. So it's, it's this weird, awkward thing. It's not quite a series, and that there's no big plot arc. But you can't really dip into book two without having to read the previous books. Um, Whereas, yes, Shards of Earth, it is a trilogy. The plot goes from book one through to book three. Um, and so the later books make even less sense if you've not read the early ones.
1: <laughs> and has Children of Time given you that leeway to make proposals to your agent or editor with these ideas that they might otherwise have said, that sounds mad let um,
2: I mean, weirdly, given that Children of Time was that proposal, it almost feels like it's gone the other way. Right. Uh, I mean, one of the th- one of the thing, the weird thing about publishing is the the higher level you end up to in publishing, the more the commercial pressure is. And so, whilst you know, if I had a book I really wanted to write that was fantastically uncommercial, I'm i have probably got the leverage to get it published somewhere. It wouldn't necessarily be published by, say, Pam Macmillan. Um, Pat Macmillan really want to publish a thing that will be commercially successful um, and this is i mean this is one reason why you tend to find that a lot of the really um, interesting weird left field books tend to come from sort of mid level yeah. and, and, and small presses because they tend to be able to take risks with um, with books that big publishers won 't
0: and you 've written both sci fi and fantasy but i suppose it's fair to say that your output recently has been more in the sci-fi world um are you planning going back
2: to the fantasy world i am well i'm more than planning um yes so another also around the end of this year coming from head of zeus is a book called city of last chances which is my first fantasy book for a while i mean it's literally the case i really wanted to write some fantasy for a while but the Pressures very much, people would very much like to publish science fiction from me because that is the thing I'm currently known for. Yep. Um, if anyone's curious about this, uh, at the. What is the. What is the. Is, of oh, the Event Horizon um, reading event from 8 to 10 this evening, I will be reading a section from the new fantasy book. Oh, cool. Um, but yeah, so I, I mean, I love writing fantasy. It is. It's. I mean, it's not that dissimilar to writing space opera-level sci-fi such as Shards of Earth. It's quite different to writing stuff that is more directly scientifically informed because there, you're working with kind of like a left wall where you know, there is a hard limit. You can't really just throw things in that would yeah. break that left wall. Yeah. Whereas with fantasy, there's a certain greater freedom of creation. And yeah, I mean, I... I Um, city of last chances is is, is, as far as writing technique goes it's a an experiment for me because it was not planned Uh, i created the world that it's set in um, cities and factions and they kind of that initial situation but the events are absolutely just almost stream of consciousness it's a mosaic book it skips between characters it's essentially it's a section through the life of a fantasy city. Um, where it's an occupied city, there is a sort of revolution brewing, but the majority of the characters that the book focuses on want nothing to do with the plot of the book. And it is really to do with their attempts to just try and live in against this backdrop of what would normally be the fantasy book plot. And I had enormous fun writing it, but it was very much a sort of... Each chapter kind of just led, concept obviously, yeah, I will now follow this other character, and we will see what they're doing, and then we'll get and we go round. And there's, it's a bit of Les Misérables, and it's a bit of the Maltese Falcon and Casablanca, and all of that sort of stuff. Cool. But it is very much about regular people. There's no one in there who is your kind of your standard fantasy protagonist. It's it just is this, it's a hive of scum and villainy to quote.
1: <laughs> but does that happen taking that different process? Does that lead to? Was that a harder book to edit afterwards because of that sort of stream of consciousness? It was,
2: I mean, it was. It was a real. It was not so much harder to edit after, because actually it all came together really nicely, but I spent most of the book being terrified that it was just going to end up at about a million pages and two million different characters and no resolution whatsoever because I didn't know where it was going. But thankfully, it all. I got to about the kind of three quarter mark and said Oh I see where this is going. I see I see you know, there are some like there are all sorts of questions like you know, who has a particular MacGuffin and things like that. And I just and I wrote most of that book not knowing who had the thing or why this thing had happened and it all kind all these questions just sort of resolved. Lovely. Yeah, and I I I'm just assuming that I've got a really good sort of subconscious kind of hand on the tiller <laughs> because I was just getting myself completely lost in the minutiae of all of these people's lives.
0: And you, you wrote a, a Warhammer book earlier this year as well, I think, in mm-hmm. February, I think. Um, was that the first time you'd played in someone else's sandbox? Yeah, that
2: was my first... Um, so, yeah, writing in someone else's IP um, was an education, because there were, there were more... I mean, that was a novella, well, a long novella, 50,000 words, more... Back and forth with the editors on that novella than on any three full length novels, okay. purely because the Warhammer guys are really really tight on what their canon has and doesn't have and yeah. so forth and I'd chosen a a corner of that that sort of IP that didn't hadn't had a huge amount of attention paid to it, so I had a fair amount of Freedom. And I don't... For example, I don't think I'd ever want to write about space marines because there's been so much written about space marines and I'd have to read most of that to get up to speed and tell oh, who are the chapters and who are the personalities and what are the battles and things. Whereas if I was just writing about this this weird alien cult, which was a... a it's been rumbling along in the, in the setting for a while, but there's not been a huge amount of attention paid to it. I just thought, oh, I'm going to have this planet. I'll make up the planet. I'll make up the situation on the planet. And I've kind of got a free hand yeah. at that point, as long as I'm not conflicting with any of their big axioms and you know, where I did they brought me up on it and I had to go back and change those bits but yeah it's, 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 it's an interesting writing exercise but you're much more constrained
0: but Is there also a kind of element that you Enjoy in terms of not having to come up with the world, like having heavy lifting in terms of the world building done for
2: you. No, I mean the world building is the thing I like. (laughs) This is the which is why I I I got as far away from their kind of core. I didn't want to write in a world that had been named, so I I made up as much as I possibly could within the axioms, and I kind of imported the bits of the you know the factions and so forth that I, I that I felt gave me some interesting directions to take, and a lot of that. So I mean that. That book is it's a clash between a sort of weird alien hybrid cult and a weird sort of cyborg fetishist cult, one of whom is kind of like the establishment and one of whom is not. And these two just really both completely horrible in their own way kind of groups clashing, clashing ideologies. And also, just the idea, I kind of like, so you've got this weird alien cult which basically says that they're going to liberate you, and basically, you all end up getting eaten by space monsters. And suggesting that that's probably still better than living in the regular Imperium, <laughs> where they just work you to death to feed their horrible corpse emperor. You know, it's an, I have a lot of sympathy for the alien cult in that and, in that and setting.
1: Having, having done that, having played in someone else's sandbox, is it something you'd want to do again, or were you did you not like the editing? Um, oh no, I know I,
2: I really enjoy it. The thing the thing is the reason I'm probably not going to write a lot of. Um, Work in other using other people's um, IP is I really tend to like the worlds, I do not generally like the established characters and dramas and dynamics. So, for example, I played an awful lot of World of Warcraft, Um, I quite like the World of Warcraft world. I have zero interest in any of their, their NPCs. Um, who obviously, you know, who, who get kind of shoehorned into the game narrative so much, it's actually quite intrusive to playing a, playing the game because oh, it's this person again. Can I just not just play a game and be my own character without these people turning up and involving me in their little spats? <laughs> um, and the same, you know, I, I quite like to write in the Star Wars universe, but I don't want to write anything to do with any of the, the established things in the. Star- and it, and and it's kind of this is why this is where I always end up with with existing IPs is I. There's so much promise in the the setting. But as soon as you crystallize it to we're telling the story of these people, so I, I'm not really interested in that. Yeah. So I suspect it's why I'll probably never do much of it. But with the, the Warhammer one in particular, the universe is very big. And although they do have their kind of established characters and dramas and so forth, it doesn't take up much of that space. Mm-hmm. Mostly because it's this big multifactional game. And because it is... Unlike a lot of games where the, this is the faction you are identifying with, you know, they have to they have to kind of expand it. So, you know, you you might want to collect the kind of the evil alien cult, or the world eating monsters, or the kind of hideous chaos creatures, and so forth. And therefore, you've got to have room for all of these things to be the focus. Yeah. So, I think it does lend itself to a bit of a broader broader view than a lot of the established IPs, where it's, you're very focused on these are the good guys.
0: Yeah, I've always kind of thought that as much as I like Star Wars, it often feels like it kind of suffers from that small universe syndrome of the same folk. It's always the Skywalker clan and it's always focused on them. And I feel there's such a massive universe that you kind of see glimpses of, but you never really get I
2: it. am so done with messianic bloodline stuff. <laughs> it's just like, I mean, it's, just, it's so ridiculous because you, you can't be a hero unless you are literally of this bloodline. I so mean, kind of, that is... That is problematic on so many different levels. <laughs> and yeah, the fact that Star Wars kind of got dragged back into that didn't... I mean, I know a lot of people like that. I didn't work for me. And I just like... I don't want to perpetuate this weird dynastic thing. I mean, I can... You know Obviously, you know, I love Dune of the Setting, for example. And again, it's, I, I wouldn't necessarily want to play in... Where does Dune go next? But the Dune setting you have at the beginning of Dune is wonderful. And that, it's, I think it's interesting. That's what everyone always goes back to that when they're thinking about Dune. They want the Mentats and the diff, all the guilds and all that, that sort of thing pre-jihad, basically. Yeah. And certainly where the role-playing game went, which is, which I've got hold of recently, which is rather nice. Um, but. I think Dune has a much more jaded idea of where the, that, you know, the problems that dynastic messianic thing leads you into. Whereas in a lot of other settings that came afterwards, it's just no, oh, this is great. Everyone, it's all to do with this, this this family and these or these this little set of families going round and round in the goldfish bowl, sort of snapping away at each other. And said, like, oh my, you know, there's a whole universe of people, and it's just like you're reducing them to numbers. And I'm far more interested in those people and them that low-level story in the setting, rather than, yes, we will smack you, we will kind of set the galaxy on fire. Is it? Yeah, but that's what about the people who are <laughs> you know, just over there watching the blaze from <laughs> a distance?
1: <laughs> so uh, what's next, then? What's, what's coming out?
2: Well, so, Children of Memory and City of Last Chances around the end of this year, beginning of next year. It's, it seems to be in flux at the moment. I'm not quite sure when. Um, the series of novellas I've been turning out for Rebellion are still going ahead. Um, the we've had ogres with this year's. Next year is one called "Put Away Childish Things," um, which had an in- inordinate amount of fun writing. The, the the concept for that one is: so what if you have a kind of a Narnia-esque other world, which is really really set up for the 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 children to turn up and and be kings and queens and save the world and so forth, except the child who is supposed to turn up never goes there and it kind of goes off in the way that milk <laughs> will when you turn the fridge off and then when he's about 30 and going through a bit of a rough patch the, the things from that hideously decayed non-earest other world turn up and want to know where the hell he's got to. <laughs> um, so that's that one. That's a lot of fun. Um, I've got a Lords of Uncreation which is the third and final book in the Architects series and more I mean so more rebellion novels novellas after that I'm current I've just handed in a standalone sci-fi that's very heavy on the alien ecology because yeah I, I have the privilege of being able to write about what I want what I enjoy and that's what people apparently want to read um, which goes under the working title of Alien Clay, although I get to keep about one title out of three. Frankly, <laughs> so that one—that that, one that wasn't even the working title. Working title because this broke broke records in that they rejected the title before I'd even submitted the book. This time, so that, <laughs> that's the second working title. Um, other than that, I. Trying to, th- I mean, basically, just there is there are a lot of there's a lot of stuff that's kind of conceptually in the pipeline um, that I'll get round to. But I'm current, yeah, I'm currently working on uh, another of the Rebellion novellas because we we got put away childish things. At the end of the first set of six I've done for them, and we are we're working on another set of six for that. And then there might be some nice anthologies and kind of collected
1: editions and all sorts of fun stuff later on.
0: Cool. Excellent. That sounds very exciting. Well, um,
1: those were the main questions that we had, but um, we have had some questions from listeners. But before we get to those, has anyone got a question that they'd like to ask you? Yep. Yeah. Um, you mentioned working with a video games company. Um, are you writing branching narrative?
2: Now? Uh, no, actually. I mean, that's it's been mentioned, but it's not something that particularly particularly um, enthuses me. I'm. So the stuff I'm doing, uh, I mean, I've been doing all sorts of all stuff, and there's a very much a limit to what I can say. I've been doing some tabletop and some, some game stuff, and it's very much sort of create, create some monsters, um, create some aliens, uh, technology, that kind of thing. Um, and at the moment, I'm working on little narrative vignettes to take us through the, the backstory of the game basically over a couple of thousand years of history, which has been uh, an interesting creative challenge and a lot of fun. Um, branching narrative and that kind of detail level, especially for a setting that someone else has created, feels to me almost the worst of both worlds because you've got to spend a lot of time getting up to speed and then you're doing a lot of very finicky, fiddly work that I don't doesn't feel terribly satisfying to me. So it's, it's kind of, I'm not... I don't really get what, unless I have, unless it is absolutely sort of my project that I've created everything on, I don't think it's something that I would, um, I'll be up for.
1: Any other questions? Yeah.
2: Yeah, you're unbelievably perfect. And when you're talking through stuff that's coming up, it's it's insane. How many things do you think you're holding in your head at any one time? And how do you, like, catalog them? Well, I mean, I've started keeping a record, um, just a written record of ideas. Because I, I I am unusually for writers I work with four with like four different publishers at the moment, and so it's a matter of there are a lot of plates spinning and you know there will be a gap saying so, right we've got a gap where I probably need to pitch something to Tor.com say so I will go to my files right what's a Tor.com sort of idea, and I will work out what, you know, what I've got. So, I mean, I've got, I've got a file that's probably got about 17 or 18 ideas that are either complete book ideas or the novella ideas or they're ideas that could be combined with other ideas to make a book, which is something that happens surprisingly frequently. That, that, you know, so, Children of Ruin is two completely separate book ideas that I said, oh, these would actually work together really well. Um, and then that gave me, you know, neither, each one might have been a novella, but it wouldn't have been a full book on its own. Click them together, that's, you know, full-on solid book, and then extra stuff will just aggregate around that, just loose ideas I've had. Um, so it, it's very hard to say how many things I've got in the head at one time, because frequently they are just bits that might Germinate into something bigger on their own or they might just get bolted into something else because they're the they're the space that they will they're the gap that they will fill
0: Can I just ask um, you said you only really work in the morning but you've just
1: listed all these projects <laughs> 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 like how many words do you write in terms of like
2: um I usually try and get about 2000 words done um <laughs> if I back when I was working at the day job as well, I would usually try and get about a thousand words done. Um, and if, it, I mean, if I'm chugging away in the middle of a long... I mean, I always slow down in the middle. And so I, I may well dip down below the thousand, the 2,000 to about 1,000. Um, and when I'm getting to the end, I tend to have this acceleration towards the final... And I mean, one of the things, talking about planning, I never plan the final chapter of a book. I know the setup, but what will actually happen right at the end of a book is I generally let the, the momentum of the book inform me at the time. But coming into that, I generally speed up, so I might be pulling sort of double shifts because I'll just have the ideas will be coming much more freely because they've got the weight of the book behind them, basically, at that point. But, I mean, on, from those writers I've seen who report word count, which is not something I personally do, but you know, 2,000 words in a day is about average, I think.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, like I say, that
2: I, I have the freedom to... I'm a full-time writer, so I've got that, that extra time, effectively. Um, and also, you know, it's one of those... I, I try and get 2,000 words of which I'm going to keep at the end of the day about 1,700 in the final manuscript. A lot of writers, they might be writing 2,000 words, but that's a first draft, and a lot of that will be canned and rewritten and juggled about and so forth. Every, you know, and it, everyone's tolerance for that sort of thing is very different,
0: We've also had some questions that have been submitted by listeners. The first one is from Shauna, who would like to know what you're finding interesting in the fantasy sci-fi scene at the moment and where you think it's headed.
2: Um, I mean, from my mind, we're in the, we've got a bit of a golden era uh, of science fiction going on at the moment. We've got partly that is, I think, because we're seeing a lot, uh, a much greater diversity of voice at the moment than we have previously, um, and that is always going to bring a greater diversity of inspiration and ideas. And so, I mean, I am I'm a huge fan of, say, Becky Chambers or Arcadie Martine. Um, I think we're seeing a real breadth of exploration of science fiction ideas from you know so Becky Chambers worked with the very very personal and then you have Archie Lee Martin or Anne Leckie or Yoon Ha Lee who are working with that big sort of political political um sort of military sphere um so I mean honestly genuinely feels like every corner of the science fiction genre, especially, um, fantasy may be lagging a bit for that, but, but every, certainly every quarter of the science fiction. Actually, no, I know, I'll, I'll, will take that back. I mean, I don't know quite where you'd put, say, Gideon the Ninth, whether it's fantasy or sci-fi, because it's, it is very much its own thing. But it again, it's something that I don't think has ever really been done before. And the fact that we are, you know, decades into science fiction and people are finding completely unexplored corners of the genre to, to bring out so, in such an accomplished manner, is, is phenomenal,
1: really. Um, Lauren asks, uh, she'd like to know how important downtime is to you and how you balance your writing with the other commitments.
2: So I can go at most two weeks without writing new stuff. I go stir-crazy towards the end of that. Um, usually it's about a week. Um, and I mean, in fact, in these days, I'm usually, you know, I finish one thing and I'm already absolutely ready to start on the next on the next thing. I um, and this is this is right. Also, this is writing new stuff. Editing doesn't count. And, you know, the game writing doesn't count. I've got to be creating my own stuff. Um, this is not a particularly mentally healthy place to be. And if I ended up in a position where I wasn't able to do that, I suspect it's going to have, uh, well, when that happens, it's going to have fairly serious repercussions. But it's that's kind of the piece I've made with my own inner demons. But this is the thing I do that kind of I feel validates me. This is the thing I can do. This is my kind of one skill. So I am absolutely compulsive about creating stuff. And very much, you know, and you know, say I've with the world, and it's creating my own world and writing about my own worlds that turns that particular wheel in my head and and ticks that little box saying you have done a thing Um, so yeah I don't really do downtime so much but I'm not saying that that is a particularly good thing
0: (laughs) (laughs) and I I have to ask very quickly before we wrap things up Um, children of time had spiders children of ruin had squids Children of Memories has?
2: Well, if you've got to the end of Children of Ruin, you will see uh, there's a species mentioned right at the end, okay. which is where I have gone for oh, Children of Memory. Yeah. So weird, I mean, it's actually almost more familiar territory than the other two, because, um, but it's, again, it's, it's, um, one of the things I'm doing in that series is taking earth animals which have a surprising intellect, and um, just sort of extrapolating from from our current understanding, so
1: cool excellent uh, well, I do have one last question that Lauren actually submitted the second question, which is what 's your favorite dinosaur <laughs> um,
2: i uh, I was a fan of Raptor-style small carnivores before they were cool. <laughs> In that when I when was I, when I was I mean I was a huge dinosaur nut when I was a kid, and for me, Deinonychus is the your kind of archetypal cool dinosaur. And these days, it's, all the kids are all about Velociraptors. And, <laughs> so Velociraptors are that big. they you know, I mean, i pretty, you, know, you have Utahraptors, and those are the ones that the Jurassic, well, that kind of validate the Jurassic Park ones, but. Um, you know, Deinonychus is, is, is it's got a better head shape and it's got you know, I, it's very, I, I got very, very geeky and in fact this is um, for those who have read the Tiger and the Wolf, the Echoes of the Fall series um, Asmanda's champion shape is a Deinonychus um, abs- just absolutely and this is just me being my kind of five-year-old self-mashing dinosaur figures
1: together <laughs> Excellent, well uh, thanks very much Adrian, I think everyone Found that really interesting and fun. So thanks. Thanks for coming Thank you. on. <laughs>